defining moments, certain events or happenings that really pretty much determine their future, establish their reputation, kind of affects all of who they're about. It's easy to think of defining moments in the patriarchs. Uh, you think about Abraham, certainly his leaving the city of Ur of Chaldees is a defining moment. The offering up of Isaac is a defining moment. His uh, having Isaac uh, born is a defining moment. So we think of David. Uh, certainly his battle with Goliath is a defining moment in his life, as is his sin with Bathsheba. And it affects all of his future. In Moses' life, there are some defining moments as well. Certainly as a child, his being placed in the bulrushes and then being rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. His having killed that Egyptian and then fleeing into the wilderness for a period of 40 years is a defining moment. Leading the children out of Israel with the plagues is a defining moment. And tonight we look at another defining moment in his life, which is his great sin. And I want us to focus upon this sin that Moses committed so that we might understand it, we might appreciate it as it were, and we might understand better God's working and dealings. So, Moses' sin as a defining moment in his life. Background to Moses' sin. When Moses committed this sin, he was in an emotionally vulnerable time in his life. My point here is for us to be on guard, for there are situations in our lives that make us much more vulnerable to acting in very sinful ways. That doesn't excuse it, but it helps us to understand it. It helps us to put it into a context. And realize why this very godly individual, on this particular occasion, acts in in a godly way and, quite frankly, quite out of character. We wouldn't expect this from Moses, looking at his life overall. So we begin by looking at his vulnerability. And that vulnerability is seen in a number of ways. First, The event that constituted Moses' sin came in the same time period as the death of Moses' sister. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. That is the introduction to this particular section that Miriam's sister uh, that Moses' sister died there. Now, Miriam was Moses' sister, Numbers 26, 59. She was a prophetess, Exodus 15, 20. And she was, at times, not a great supporter of Moses, Numbers 12, 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And so they find fault with Moses. God judged Miriam by making her a leper, But when the cloud was drawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. 
However, Moses interceded for her. And Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, O God, heal her, I pray. God heard the prayer of Moses. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. I'm just trying to give you a background to the interplay between Moses and his sister. Bittersweet. Some good times, some bad times. But Miriam had just died. And this experience would have been incredibly emotionally draining. Moses is opposed by his own brother and sister, as mentioned. Moses is vindicated by God. Moses intercedes for, uh, that should be Miriam and Aaron, and Aaron. Now Moses is faced with Miriam's death. Secondly, the event came in association with a tremendous problem that Moses had to deal with. <clears throat> and there was no water for the congregation. And then the next phrase, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. <clears throat> In Hebrew, these are known as law consecutives. They are significant because they are a continuation of thought and and narrative. We're to see this as a whole. Miriam dies, and there's no water, and they assembled against him. We're we're, we're to see a, a building pyramid. We're to see the stones mounting up. Here are three specific issues that Moses is facing all at the same time. So his sister dies, and in the midst of her death and the grieving and the mourning, now they come to a place where there's no water for the congregation. So where would Moses find water for the people to drink? That was now foremost in his thinking and radar. What was he going to do? These people were going to... uh, die, literally, of thirst. Where was he going to get this water? So he has that to deal with. And then thirdly, the people came blaming Moses for the situation that they were in. They were against Moses, Numbers 20, verse 2. There was no water for the congregation. And, this third walk consecutive, they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. So if it's not bad enough that his sister dies, and it's not bad enough that there's no water for anybody to drink, At the same time, the people are coming to Moses and they're blaming him and saying, what are you going to do about this? It's not like it has to be drawn to his attention. He knows there's no water. He knows that that uh, they are all thirsty, but now they are opposing him. They're not trying to find a solution. They're not trying to support him, saying, Moses, we know it's a difficult time for you. Your sister just died, and you've got all these people to look after, and we feel sorry for you because we know you're trying to get water for us. But no, they're coming, and they're out for blood. Moses, what's wrong with you? Why did you bring us here? Why are we going through all of this? They were against Moses. And they were fighting with Moses. The people thus contended with Moses. They quarreled with Moses, and I be. For they brought a series of accusations against him. First, they viewed themselves at this place because of Moses' decisions and not the will of God. 
Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness? Moses, why did you bring us to this spot? What lack of leadership? What lack of foresight? Why in the world would you lead us to a place where there's no water? That's not a bright thing to do, Moses. And so they are attacking Moses. Secondly, they anticipate nothing but a negative outcome. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Okay, so they see no way out. We're goners. We're going to die. And they accuse Moses of misleading them. Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into a wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranate, nor is there water to drink. So this is not the promised land. This is not the land flowing with milk and honey that you talked to us about. You deceived us. You misled us. Look where we are. It's not at all the way you described it. And we came following you. We came putting our trust in you. And you have misled us. The other point I want to go back to is found at the top of this page. Numbers 20, verse 3, where it says that they contended with Moses. Or the enemy says they quarreled with Moses. This turns into, I think, and I'll substantiate this in just a moment, a shouting match. Moses has had it with these people. And they're fighting. That's what the world quarrel means. They're fighting with each other. Moses is upset with them, and they are upset with Moses. And it is in this context that Moses becomes extremely vulnerable. He's already in a bad mood. He's already grieving. He's already at wit's end. Nobody's supporting him. And he is fed up. Not a good situation to find yourself in a time of great testing. We need to be very much on guard. In times in which we're despondent. In times in which we are upset. In times in which we feel alone or abandoned by people. In times of being grieving. In times of physical need. Whatever the case may be. If you remember, Jesus is led into the wilderness. For 40 days he eats nothing. And as soon as Satan comes to him, the very first temptation that Satan brings to Jesus when he's been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and has not eaten anything is turn this bread into turn the stone into bread because he's hungry. Satan knows where to attack us. It doesn't excuse, but it gives us an understanding of what um, Moses is going through, and it also gives us an understanding of the nature of his sin. So what does Moses do? Well, he seeks the Lord's help. That's certainly a good thing. Okay, Moses and Aaron come humbly seeking God's help. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. God graciously met with Moses and Aaron. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So God revealed himself and revealed himself in a very demonstrable way. And God gives a solution to Moses. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So 
there is the plan of attack. That's the solution. Moses before the people. Initially, Moses does what the Lord commanded him to do. So Moses took the rod before the Lord just as he had commanded him. However, Moses sins. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. So, wherein does Moses' sin consist? What did he do that was so terrible? What was it that he did that would forbid him from entering the promised land? Well, first, God says that Moses did not believe God. Verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me. Because you have not believed me. Wherein did the disbelief originate? Where did it consist? When did Moses exhibit unbelief? I don't think it's when God tells him to go out and speak to the rock. I think he believes that this rock is going to Bring forth water. I don't think it's there. I think it's prior to that. Back when they're coming to Moses and saying to Moses, Moses, why have you brought us here to this place where there is no water? And he's quarreling with them because he doesn't have an answer. He doesn't have a solution. He doesn't know where he's going to get water from. And at that point, he is failing to trust God every bit as much as the people are. They're finding fault with Moses and saying, where's the water coming from? And Moses doesn't know. He should have said, God will provide. He should have said, God has led us to this point. God will see us through. He should have said, yes, it's true. I said we're going to a land flowing with milk and honey because we are going to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is just a bypass. This is just a an excursus. This is just a moment in time. But we're going to get there. Moses says none of those things. Because at this point, he is at wit's end. So that's the beginning of this downward spiral. When Moses himself is failing to trust God for this water. Secondly, and what seems to be a primary concern with God, is that Moses misrepresented God. Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Moses disgraced God. Moses dishonored God in Israel's sight. Rather than exalting and promoting God, he treated God in such a way as he was not viewed. That is, God was not viewed as holy or separate or entirely different. So how did he do that? The Old Testament points more to what Moses said than to what he did, namely strike the rock. A lot of times the the Sunday school material when it deals with this story, focuses on the fact that he, he struck the rock. 
Well, he shouldn't have struck the rock. But, interestingly enough, what the scripture itself points out is not what he did, namely strike the rock, but what he said. Notice Psalm 106, verse 32 and verse 33, NIV. By the waters of Meribah, they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them. For they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. It's what he said that, that most upset God. It's what he spoke. And I think it goes all the way back to the quarreling, right up to and including his speaking to them when he smites the rock. First, Moses misrepresented God by making himself and Aaron the source of the provision of water as opposed to God. Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered this assembly before the rock and he said to them, now they're gathered around this rock and he says to them these words, listen now you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? The we is Moses and Aaron, because that's who they have problems with. And they say to Moses and Aaron, why have you led us here? Why have you brought us to this, this place? And Moses says, look, we're going to provide for you water from this rock. He doesn't speak about what God is going to do. He speaks about what he is going to do. In John chapter 6, verse 31, we have a telling verse. These are people speaking to Jesus and said, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Israel had a problem. It was an understandable problem. It was a natural problem in the sense that they ascribed far more blame and, and uh, praise and success to the person of Moses. Uh, he's kind of like, I think, a quarterback on most football teams where Sometimes the quarterback gets far too much blame for a loss and far too much credit for a victory. Or maybe a better analogy would be the coach. And after the team loses 14 games, they fire the coach as though he's out there playing. Well, Moses was getting the blame, but he was also getting the credit. And in most instances, that's why I say it's out of character, I think we can see Moses trying to diffuse that and bring glory to God. But on this occasion, in this instance, in his frustration and in his anger and in his sorrow and in all of that pent up emotion. He talks about what he and Aaron are going to do for these ungrateful rebels. Moses should have been pointing the people to God. Secondly, Moses misrepresented God's character by demonstrating an impatience when God, in fact, was long-suffering toward his people. 
Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and said to them, Listen now, you rebels. God didn't say that. God did not tell him to, to rebuke the people in that way. That was, again, his frustration coming out. You rebels. You, you people that fail to, to trust God. You, you rebellious people. Now remember, the text says that Moses had failed to believe God. If anything, Moses was of like character with these people. He should have identified with their frustration. He should have identified with their fear. He should have identified with their lack of faith in God. He should have said, you know, we all failed to trust God in this instance. We all were at wit's end. We all did not know what God was going to do. But now watch what God is going to do. Because God is faithful. Because God provides. But that is not His message. His message is, is how could you rebellious, disobedient people do this kind of stuff? The Scripture refers to Moses as the most humble man on the face of this earth. But you don't see it here. Again, why it's out of character. Next, Moses took his frustration out upon God. Rather than speak to the rock, Moses struck the rock. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Um, How much of the symbolism Moses understood, I don't know. But I'm one that believes that Moses understood a tremendous amount of this symbolism. Because the Word of God talks about how the the, uh, tabernacle was revealed to him in the uh, the visions. Uh, He understood, I think, a tremendous amount. Did he actually understand that this rock symbolized Christ? I don't know. But he certainly knew that it at least symbolized God's provision. And instead of humbly requesting water to flow from this rock, in his anger and in his frustration, he beats this rock, not just once, but twice. What should have been a request turns into a demand. What should have been a humble beseeching of God to provide now becomes an act in which he strikes this rock. Let me ask you a question. Why does he strike it twice? I think because the first time the water didn't come out. Because he wasn't told to smite the rock. He was told to speak to the rock. And so he strikes the rock in his frustration, in his anger, and nothing happens. There, by the grace of God, was an opportunity to repent. There, by the grace and mercy of God, was an occasion for Moses to have said, wait a minute, 
I shouldn't be smiting this rock. That's not what I was told to do. He should have humbled himself before the people and said, I have failed you and I have failed God. But he doesn't. He smites the rock a second time. And God in his grace has water come out of the rock. Because God in his grace is going to provide for his people. Despite the sinful behavior of Moses. God isn't going to make the whole congregation pay for what Moses has done. Now, God pronounces judgment upon Moses. God will not allow Moses to lead the children of Israel in the promised land. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you should not bring this assembly into the land which I have given to them. So I ask the question, does the punishment fit the crime? Does the punishment fit the crime? Is this appropriate? Now, uh, who can stand in uh, measure against what God does? So that's almost a blasphemous question to ask. But I'm going to come out with, yes, it is. Yes, it is. But why is it? Well, first, remember the people had questioned Moses' leadership and not bring them into the promised land. And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? Is it not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? Nor is that water to drink. Moses failed to remind the people that it was God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They just gloss over that. But that's a pretty significant statement. Moses, you brought us out of Egypt. You, you, you did these great and, and mighty things, but now look. Right then, he should have stopped short and said, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I, I, I didn't bring you out of Egypt. God brought you out of Egypt. And if they would have got back to that perspective, it would have been easier now to see that they are where they are at the leading of God and not just the leading of Moses. Secondly, thirdly, Moses takes credit for providing water for the people rather than giving God the glory, which we've already spoken out of in detail. Fourth, Moses failed to remind the people that it is God who is giving to them the promised land. And fifthly, therefore, God brings glory to himself by demonstrating that God does not need Moses in order to bring the people in the promised land. That's the bottom line. God said, Moses, you have not treated me as holy. You haven't set me apart in the congregation. You haven't exalted me. Moses, you've taken just a little too much credit. Moses, you're not going to lead this people in the promised land. Because God had to, underline had to, demonstrate to this people that it wasn't all about Moses. That God didn't need Moses to lead them into the promised land. He could raise up another. He did. He raised up Joshua. He had given Moses a unique privilege and duty and responsibility. And Moses failed in bringing glory to God 
So God says, you're disqualified. Because the people need to understand. It's not all about you. It's all about me. And I am accomplishing this great act. One of the great temptations that the people of God face is that we have a tendency to take too much credit when God uses us. When God blesses us. When we see the fruit of our labors and people come up and and commend you. Now, I think there needs to be a balance in these things. Um, when people come up to me, sometimes people will say, I appreciate that sermon or that, that was good. I usually will say, thank you. I don't usually say, praise the Lord or it was the Lord. I usually just simply say, thank you. But I hope in saying thank you that I point often enough to the fact that I really realize that apart from the Spirit of God at work, nothing is accomplished. If there is something that, that, that really speaks to your heart, that, that's of God. I hope you realize that. Because if you don't, I have failed miserably. Because we are not to get credit. God is to get credit. And if we understand that and realize that God is the one that gets credit, then we don't worry about the future. Then we don't worry about, well, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen when so-and-so dies? Or what's going to happen when this person is no longer in our midst? Well, God is still going to be in our midst. Which means things will continue on just fine. Which means we will have all that we stand in need of. Which means there's nothing to fear. Because it's all about God. It's not all about us. And if we don't understand that, we're going to be removed. Through this judgment, God reveals His holiness, His distinction. Numbers 20, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. That is what this place has come to known as through time. In reflection, when the Bible is written, long after the event, this place is known as Kadesh. It wouldn't have been known as that when they got there. It's known as that when they leave there. This is the place of Kadesh. And Kadesh in Hebrew, means holy. This is the place where they learn that God is holy. God is distinct. God is unique. God alone is to be feared. God alone is to be believed. God alone is to be trusted. God alone can provide. God alone will lead us to the promised land. God is unique. And there they learned his uniqueness. It was a defining moment, not only in Moses' life, 
but in the life of all Israel. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for that which you teach us. Thank you for the revelation that you give and help us to see. At times when we are at wit's end and we don't know where to turn and we don't know what to do. And if we are in places of leadership and people are looking to us and clamoring and wanting some kind of answer and we don't know what to do. Lord, help us to humbly be reminded that we're to believe you. That we're to trust in you. That we're not just to rely upon our own selves. But as Moses did, we are to turn to you. And then in turning to you, Lord, help us to have the humility to see that the unbelief that we manifested prior to that is just like the unbelief of those round about us. Help us to see that we all have times of doubt. We all have times of question. We all have moments in our lives, though we know you to be faithful, though we have seen your power at work, though we can give testimony of answered prayers, Yet, God, I don't understand, but it is true that we doubt you. That we question your goodness. We wonder why we are where we are. Oh God, help us to believe you and to believe you more fully, completely, more regularly. And guard us in times of emotional distress, in times of Weakness in times of people opposing us. Lord, help us not to want to vindicate ourselves and to exalt ourselves and to take things in our own hand. But Lord, may we in humility again point people to you and give you the credit for all that you're going to accomplish in our midst. And Lord, help us as a people to put our faith not in our leaders, but in God. And oh God, we beg of you to lead us. And we thank you that you are going to be the one that brings us into the place of your presence and your glory. You have redeemed us and you alone. And you will watch over us and you alone. And you will protect us and you alone. And you will save us. And you alone. And you will bring us into your presence. And you alone. And we give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.